You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today, as Benjamin Netanyahu prepares to form a new government in Israel, we ask what prospect remains for a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And can Mr. Netanyahu heal the breach between Israel and its most powerful ally, the United States? But we begin in the United States, where Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz has become the first candidate to formally announce he's running for his party's presidential nomination for 2016. Former Florida Governor Jeb Bush is expected to get into the race with, within weeks, along with a host of other Republican hopefuls, including Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker and Florida Senator Marco Rubio. On the Democratic side, Hillary Clinton looks set to declare during April, and she's already the runaway favourite for the, her party's nomination. To discuss these first moves in the long race for the White House, I'm joined now from Washington by our correspondent, Simon Carswell. Simon, Ted Cruz, the first to get in. Can you tell us something about who Ted Cruz is and what he's running on? Well, he's a first-time senator uh, from Texas, as you said. He's 44 years old, and he's an Ivy League-educated lawyer, married to a Goldman Sachs executive, Heidi. And he comes with strong conservative credentials. He's a former clerk to the U.S. Chief Justice, William Rehnquist. Uh, he worked on George W. Bush's presidential campaign in 2000. And he uh, won something of a long-shot race to become senator in 2012 when he beat David Dewhurst, who was Texas lieutenant governor. And uh, he really took advantage of the, the Tea Party wave that swept many Republicans to power in 2010. And that really determined his rhetoric in the 2012 campaign and also his rhetoric now in announcing uh, his intention to run for the presidency in 2016. It's really, I think we should read more into this, that he's appealing to the Republican side rather than to the general electorate. Um, it's a packed field amongst the Republicans in contrast to the Democratic side. And he's really trying to get his name out there early to take advantage of the conservatives uh, who and evangelical Christians who will be voting early in the race uh, in Iowa, it's the first state in the country to decide who uh, the parties want to be president or to be the presidential nominee in the race. So he's trying to get out ahead of the likes of some of the other candidates in the race. You have, on the Christian side, you have Mike Huckabee, the former governor of Arkansas, and Rick Santorum, who's the former senator from Pennsylvania. These guys have shown that they have uh, uh, tried and tested presidential credentials in uh, previous races, given that they both won Iowa caucuses. So Ted Cruz really needed to get out there early and to pin his colours to the mast and to show that he is a viable candidate for a president. If you look at some of the rhetoric that he used when he announced his candidacy yesterday in uh, at the Liberty University, appropriately named, given what he's standing for, um, he's really trying to energise what he, what he calls courageous conservatives and appealing to this idea that to reignite the promise of America. And uh, so he's trying to uh, rally support amongst them early to try and set him out from the others in the race. Saying that, he's not even in the top five in Republican candidates, which probably speaks to why he's getting out so early. So he's got a lot to do. I think he will get some traction amongst conservatives, but it comes down to, uh, this time around, it'll come down to whether the Republican establishment who are backing uh, Jeb Bush, whether they see Ted Cruz as being a candidate who could beat 
uh, a democratic challenger in the likes of someone as strong as Hillary Clinton in the general election. And that's not looking great at the moment. So he might win Iowa and he might win New Hampshire. But uh, further down the line, certainly be a challenge uh, to go any further in the race. Certainly, Simon, what's happened in the last few uh, election cycles has been that the party base has tended to flirt with Conservatives. But in the end, the establishment candidate, whether that's Mitt Romney or George W. Bush or John McCain, tends to win out. And at the moment, as you say, the uh, the establishment candidate appears to be Jeb Bush. How's he doing? Jeb Bush is doing pretty well. Um, tellingly, he's doing best in the fundraising stakes. He's raising a lot of money from establishment donors. Um, Ted Cruz has announced this early again to see if he can raise some money. But this is the problem for the Republican Party. It's kind of a two-headed beast. They're having to uh, appeal to conservatives in the primary race, yet when it comes to the general election, they have to produce a candidate who has a prospect of appealing to middle ground voters, to independent, to swing voters. And the likes of Ted Cruz is not seen as somebody who would do that. So you're going to see a very uh, hard-fought primary race where the establishment candidates, the likes of Jeb Bush, uh, will uh, be trying to really rule, rule, out, um, uh, rule out someone like Ted Cruz running uh, and also just to prove that he does have his own conservative credentials yet can pivot to the centre and can challenge the likes of Hillary Clinton if and when she does announce um, in the general election. The other candidate who's been getting a lot of attention lately is uh, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. He, of course, hasn't declared as yet, but he's widely expected to get into the race. Who's he and what is his appeal, Simon? Scott Walker, he's the Wisconsin governor. He's very popular amongst conservatives. He gave an electrifying speech to a group of conservatives in Iowa back in January uh, that really uh, put him, propelled him forward in the race to the point where he's neck and neck with Jeb Bush. Both, on an average of polls, according to the Real Clear Politics website, are in and around the 16% mark. So he's really um, surprised a lot of people. He's regarded as kind of being the dark horse. He's um, appealing to conservatives because he's won a series of elections in the last uh, in the last number of years. He survived a recall election. He's the only uh, politician to have survived a recall election, mainly because of his opposition to the trade union movement. Uh, the recall election was called because uh, the labor movement in Wisconsin were unhappy with some of the anti-union measures that he introduced, and he survived that. So that's appealed to conservatives, the fiscal conservatives, who see him as a very uh, viable candidate in the uh, in the Republican primary race and also in the general election. So he's really one to watch. He's come from behind. And the fact that he's challenging Jeb Bush uh, shows, explains uh, to, to, to a degree why Ted Cruz has come out. He's trying to win back some of those conservative voters uh, into his camp and uh, really trying to uh, take some of the heat out of the Scott Walker's campaign. Uh, meanwhile, on the Democratic side, uh, everybody's expecting Hillary Clinton to get into the race very soon. Is there any doubt about that now? I don't think there is. I think it's just a question of when rather than if it'll happen. It's expected sometime in April. Um, I think Democrats are concerned somewhat that it'll be a, cons- it'll be a coronation rather than a, a Democratic primary race. Uh, uh, the former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley is in the mix still. Uh, former Senator Jim Webb is still in the mix too. But these are regarded as being uh, way behind uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. There's a big push to have um, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren run. She would be running very very much to the left of Hillary Clinton and even to the left of Obama because of her anti-Wall Street, pro-consumer protection uh, 
platform on which she, uh, she, she, um, she, she uh, operates in the Senate. So I think there's a popular push to have her, um, to have her run. I don't think she would have uh, a chance of beating Hillary Clinton, but what it would do is, is it would certainly make the Democratic race much more interesting and could drag uh, Hillary Clinton to the left somewhat, much like a Ted Cruz might pull Jeb Bush to the right in the Republican primary race. Hillary Clinton's been in a spot of bother in the last few weeks over the fact that while she was Secretary of State, she didn't actually have a State Department email. Instead, all her emails went through a private server which was housed in her home. Uh, Is that a scandal that's likely to have legs or to uh, stalk her through the campaign? I think the emails in in themselves are are a controversy that the Republicans would stoke up. You have two uh, congressional committees investigating the attacks on the uh, diplomatic outpost in Benghazi and Libya uh, several years ago, and you're seeing the Republican investigators really probing those emails in much more detail. So that's going to hang around. It's caused a a bit of problem for her. I think also the way she handled that, um, you know, responding initially in a tweet and not dealing with it head on, and then in the press conference she subsequently held, she was regarded as not, not, not addressing the main problem and being somewhat dismissive as this being a non-story. But I think it's, it's given Republicans an opportunity to uh, fire a few more darts at Hillary in the run-up to her announcing. So I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Uh, so, Simon, Ted Cruz is in. Uh, will the rest of them all get in, do you think, in the next few weeks? I think the expectation is we'll see a number of announcements. The Kentucky Senator Rand Paul is expected out of the blocks shortly after Cruz. Uh, I think you'll see some of the other candidates announced in, in response to what uh, Ted Cruz has done and, and getting out there early. So I think you'll see uh, it's the number of um, candidates announcing, the number of announcements snowballing over the coming weeks. But, um, you know, he's basking in some glory in, in response to this, to being the first out of the blocks, to being the first to make a very public statement. But I think some of his policies will Will, uh, will really discourage people from voting for him. He's really quite strong, really out in the conservative wing of the party. Some of the things he's wanting is to abolish the Internal uh, Revenue Service, to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and to challenge some of the science behind climate change. So I think you're seeing a very far-right conservative uh, contender here for the presidency, and we're yet to see some of the more moderate um, candidates who are likely to have a better chance of, of, um, of, of running for the presidency. Simon Carswell in Washington, thank you. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu won a clear victory in last week's general election, but since then he's been on the back foot, trying to row back on statements he made in the last days of the campaign. Mr Netanyahu says he now regrets a statement he made on polling day, warning that the right-wing government was in danger because the Arabs are voting in droves, a reference to Israeli Arabs who are citizens of Israel. The Prime Minister has also been retreating from his declaration that there'll be no two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as long as he's in power, a statement that outraged the Obama administration in Washington. To make matters worse, the Wall Street Journal is reporting that Israel has been spying on the Iranian nuclear talks and feeding information to Republicans in the US Congress who are opposed to a nuclear deal. So how badly damaged is Israel's relationship with Washington? And what can we expect from Mr Netanyahu's fourth term in office? I'm joined from Jerusalem by our correspondent Mark Weiss, and Simon Carswell is still with us on the line from Washington. Mark, this Iranian spying row, what exactly is the allegation against Israel and what is Israel saying about it? Well, according to the report in the Wall Street Journal, 
Uh, Israel spied for more than a year on the closed-door nuclear talks between the P5 plus one, the world powers, and Iran. And uh, worse than that, shared the information that it gathered with members of the U.S. Congress in order to convince them not to support the emerging deal. And it must be said that uh, all Israeli officials have categorically denied the allegations uh, throughout the day. Um, and, and Foreign Minister Viktor Lieberman even went one step further. He hinted, he didn't say outright, of course, but he hinted that um, there were enough participants involved uh, in the talks, such as the Iranians, he said, and Israel got its intelligence from other sources, not from the United States. So uh, is this, uh, obviously this is coming at a time when uh, Israel's relationship with Washington seems to be under a certain amount of pressure, to say the very least. Is this going to make it worse? I think so. Uh, Israeli officials off the record are saying that uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal report was credible in the sense that it was probably leaked by um, senior Obama administration officials as part of this ongoing uh, um, um, turbulence in bilateral relations, if you like, part of efforts by the administration to uh, undermine uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, as he now attempts to form uh, the, his fourth term, his fourth Israeli government. Um, it's clear that uh, there will be ramifications, uh, particularly in light of the decision by the Israeli Prime Minister to defy the president and speak before a joint session of both houses of Congress uh, last month on the, Isra on the Iranian deal. Um, there will be payback for that. You, the U.S. is reassessing its uh, relationship with Israel, and it's quite likely that they will at least um, stop supporting Israel at uh, international forums, particularly in the United Nations and the Security Council, and may even go one stage further and absolutely, actually sign on to uh, motions uh, that Israel certainly does not want to see, such as uh, a resolution in favor of Palestinian statehood. How serious would that be from the Israeli point of view? It would certainly reverse decades of uh, Israel relying on Washington in international forums for uh, support and an almost automatic uh, veto of anti-Israel resolutions. It would make Israel's uh, diplomacy extremely difficult. Um, remember, much of the world, uh, but the third world, of course, the Muslim states are already very firmly in the anti-Israel camp. Uh, we have some states that uh, are more or less neutral, uh, depending on the issues, such as the EU bloc, particularly. And the US, along with, at the moment, Canada and Australia, if you like, have been Israel's only reliable uh, supporters on the, in, on the, dipl uh, on the dipl international front. If uh, there was to be a significant rethink by Washington, it would be a very significant diplomatic blow for Israel. Can we go back for a moment to the uh, last days of the election campaign and these statements that uh, Mr. Netanyahu made? Can you tell us just something about what he was saying and the context in which he was saying them? There was, first of all, the statement with regard to a two-state solution where he had previously said that he favoured a two-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and then he appeared to, with, to retreat from that. And secondly, his remark about Arab-Israeli voters. Yes, these are the two key uh, election campaign remarks. 
Uh, I mean, some people would say that any uh, statement said in the heat of an election campaign should be taken with a, a pinch of salt. But I don't think the Prime Minister uh, made these comments without uh, thinking uh, deeply what the consequences would be. He obviously thought they would be vote winners, and he was prepared to pay the price uh, for these comments. Um, and and the reassessment in Washington and the, uh, the uh, negative backlash by the international community is the price that Israel will be paying for these comments. The first comment he said in a radio interview a few days before the Israelis went to the polls, uh, he said that if he was re-elected prime minister, there would, uh, a Palestinian state would not be established during his term as prime minister. Now, remember way back in 2009, uh, Netanyahu publicly endorsed for the first time uh, the two-state solution, that is, the establishment uh, of an independent Palestine side by side with Israel as the outcome of peace negotiations. Since then, there, has been, there have been many people who, who uh, believe that he was actually bluffing, that he said this, he endorsed this, but he didn't really believe it, and he certainly had no intention of actually implementing it. He was merely treading water, playing for time. The negotiations with the Palestinians under his leadership would not go anywhere. Um, he, of course, would deny this, as would his supporters, and blame the Palestinian side for the ongoing deadlock um, in the talks. But when Netanyahu, for the first time, said that there would be no Palestinian state if he was re-elected, it certainly gave weight uh, to the doubters, to the people who believed that he had been bluffing uh, when he endorsed a two-state solution. So this was a very significant statement. Of course, since then, he's backtracked, and he said um, he still supports the theory of a two-state solution, but the conditions at the moment are not right. Uh, the Palestinian leadership uh, has uh, signed an agreement uh, with Hamas, which calls for Israel destruction. The Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, refuses to accept the idea of a Jewish state. And until these things change, there can be no Palestinian state. So what is the world to believe? And what are the Palestinians to believe? Do they believe Netanyahu's statement that he doesn't want a Palestinian state? Or do they believe his statement from a few days ago that he actually does, but the conditions are not right? On the second issue you mentioned, uh, on the election day itself, uh, in, in repeated interviews, the Prime Minister made uh, uh, comments that were interpreted, certainly by uh, many in the Israeli Arab community, uh, uh, of being outlay, uh, overtly racist. He said the Arab voters, Israeli citizens, they make up about 20% of the population here, were, quote, voting in droves and were being taken to the polling stations, um, were tra uh, transported to the polling stations, uh, uh, by uh, Israeli NGOs funded from abroad. Uh, and therefore, he, he urged the Jewish voters uh, to come out and vote to counterbalance this. Uh, this was a slight and insult to Israeli, Arab, uh, Israeli Arabs who are citizens of the state and have a right to vote just like anyone else. Um, again, yesterday he backtracked, saying that he hadn't... It wasn't an outright apology yesterday from the Prime Minister, but he said he hadn't meant to make any offence by those comments. So again, you believe what you will. But both comments in general were definitely attempts um, to win over right-wing Israelis who were considering voting for the smaller right-wing parties and make them vote for the Likud, the Prime Minister's party, instead. Where the second comment about the Arab-Israeli voters is concerned, how unusual is that tone within the political discourse in Israel? 
Amongst the uh, far-right parties, uh, Avigdor Lieberman's uh, Yisrael Beitenu and the far-right uh, Jewish Home Party, not unusual at all. Um, they are clearly anti-Arab. They certainly get no votes, you know, very few votes in the Arab sector. Uh, they're right-wing. They don't believe in a Palestinian state. They don't believe in prospects for peace. Their leaders will say there is absolutely no hope at all in, this, in our generation for any kind of agreement with the Palestinians. Uh, so they, uh, their leaders and the senior politicians will make those anti, overtly anti-Arab comments on a regular basis. It's much rarer within the Prime Minister's Likud party, and certainly for an Israeli Prime Minister to make comments uh, against uh, a minority within the country, criticizing the fact that citizens uh, from Arab origin were voting, is unprecedented. Simon Carswell, from the point of view of the Obama administration, how serious is the breach between Israel and the United States now? Well, it's very serious. The issue of the um, Iranian nuclear deal talks has really replaced immigration and Obamacare, I guess, to a lesser extent, as the most divisive issue between the White House and congressional Republicans. Um, it's becoming more of an issue as well as the 2016 presidential race comes into play, given that many on the Republican side have to prove their pro-Israel uh, credentials to show that they have a strong hand, both uh, commanding uh, grasp of foreign policy as well as not wishing to alienate Israel uh, has during that campaign. It's caused a lot of problems. Say relations between uh, Israel and the U.S. Is, are pretty poor, the worst they've been in, in certainly in decades. Um, they were already pretty bad uh, coming into this month ahead of the Israeli elections when um, Benjamin Netanyahu ex- accepted an invitation from the Speaker of the House of Representatives, John Boehner, a Republican, to, to address a joint session of Congress to warn about the risks of the talks with Iran on the nuclear deal. Um, and uh, on the back of that, uh, the president refused to meet Netanyahu when he came into, into Washington on the basis that he doesn't meet um, political leaders ahead of elections. Uh, and it's become a real uh, partisan issue. Uh, and, and beyond that as well, it's caused some problems for Democrats who are, have reservations about the deal and are, are pressing uh, President Obama not to accept the deal that would not uh, dismantle Iran's nuclear program. And also you had senators uh, going so far as, uh, Republican senators going so far as to writing an open letter to Iran's leaders warning them that any nuclear deal that they sign with Obama uh, won't last beyond his term of office. So this is really a case of Republicans uh, interfering, as the White House would see it, in a major foreign policy issue. And the Iranian talks are a very important foreign policy issue for the president. It's one of the key planks of his foreign policy agenda in his second term. And uh, he would see Netanyahu as as getting involved in um, important domestic politics by coming to Washington uh, and also uh, ruining Republicans uh, as part of uh, of their opposition to those talks. In terms of the uh, administration's response to uh, the issues that we've been discussing uh, in terms of Mr. Netanyahu's remarks about a two-state solution and other remarks that he's made and the the general approach of uh, Mr. Netanyahu to the talks with the Palestinians, uh, President Obama's chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, uh, gave a remarkable speech to uh, J Street, a Jewish-American group that uh, favors a two-state solution, 
uh, this week where he said that 50 years after the occupation, it was time the occupation ended and that if the uh, if the Israeli government was not prepared to uh, pursue talks to end the occupation, that perhaps the international community needed to look at other options for doing so. How big a departure is that? The very significant comments by Dennis McDonough, much has been made of Netanyahu's pre-election comments. Uh, the words of former New York governor Mario Cuomo was quoted, well, politicians govern, gov- uh, campaign in poetry and they govern in prose, but the Obama administration has, chose, uh, has chosen to take seriously uh, Netanyahu's comments. Uh, certainly, an uh, interview given by President Obama over the weekend at the Huffington Post said that uh, he, he basically needs to take Netanyahu at his word and saying what wouldn't happen during his prime ministership. And then Dennis McDonough going further and saying this, uh, criticizing Israeli uh, occupation of the West Bank, saying occupation that has lasted almost 50 years must end. And uh, he described the, uh, the pre-election assertions by Netanyahu as very troubling. So these are very strong comments. Um, McDonough has said that he cannot simply pretend that these comments were never made. I must be stressed, though, that these comments were made to J Street, who uh, this is a, um, a pro-Israel group in Washington that would not be supporters of Netanyahu. So again, it points to the Obama administration's frustration with the Israeli prime minister and some of the comments that he's made, and also must be seen in light of the fact that relations are pretty poor ever since um, uh, since since Netanyahu came to Washington in direct opposition uh, from the White House and giving that speech to the joint session of Congress. Mark Weiss, do you think that we're entering uh, a new phase in Israel's relationship with the broader international community? Are we seeing something like what happened to South Africa as it lost one ally and supporter after another? Well, that remains to be seen. Um, we're clearly, um, the U.S. is reassessing its tires. We don't know exactly how that will play out. Um, we can expect, I think, uh, more generally more international pressure from the from the international community on Israel, uh, particularly if the um, uh, the deadlock continues uh, in the Middle East peace process, which uh, is certainly the case at the moment. Uh, but there is a key difference with the South Africa situation. Uh, that was a minority rule uh, where a small percentage ruled, uh, a small minority of whites ruled over a, a, a large majority of blacks without giving them the vote. In Israel, we have just had uh, elections. Uh, the people spoke, if you like. Uh, now, it's clear that they spoke in a manner that uh, the international community uh, is not happy with. Uh, the, uh, there is overwhelming support in the international community for a, a two-state solution and territorial concessions on Israel's part in order to achieve a, a peace process. Uh, however, uh, how far will the Obama administration and the international community uh, be prepared to go uh, against uh, the democratic will, if you like, of the Israeli people? That is the key question here. Uh, Netanyahu will definitely fall back on that and say that he has a mandate uh, for uh, a belligerent policy, if you like. Certainly, uh, uh, he would say uh, a very careful policy of not making concessions uh, in the in in this era when the region, the whole region, the whole Middle East is in turmoil and uh, territorial concessions in the past when Israel, for instance, pulled out of the Gaza Strip and pulled out of the South Lebanon resulted uh, in 
heavily armed uh, Iranian proxies taking over that territory. Uh, so he would argue that he has a mandate from the Israeli population in a democratically, uh, a democratic elections, not to, to, to follow a similar policy in the West Bank. And the government that Benjamin Netanyahu is about to form is likely to be a rightist government, in his own words. Uh, what will, does that tell us about the likely policies of that government over the next few years? It's very likely the shape of the government we more or less know, even though uh, only tomorrow will the president formally task Netanyahu with forming the government. But it's almost certain that it will be formed of all the, uh, the Likud, his own party, together with all the other right-wing parties and all the other religious parties, plus one centrist party. Uh, there will be a key difference between uh, this new government and the outgoing government. The outgoing government had, um, as one of its members, Tsipi Livni's uh, Tnua party, which was center, center-left, if you like. She took charge of the negotiations with uh, the Palestinians, even though uh, they didn't actually uh, make much progress. And she, if you like, was uh, the fig leaf that Netanyahu needed uh, vis-a-vis the international community. This current, uh, the government that's probably going to be formed, will have no fig leaf, will have no, although there is one center party probably uh, going to be in the government, it will have no center-left fig leaf uh, to, to show the international community, someone who can speak on behalf of the government uh, in favor of territorial concessions, in favor of negotiations. So uh, from that point of view, it will be much more difficult for uh, in Netanyahu and Israel on the international stage. And finally, Mark, uh, if the international community is minded to, uh, as you say, view the uh, Netanyahu government as being without a fig leaf and without the benefit of, a da- of the doubt, uh, what kind of measures uh, that could be within uh, their command, such as sanctions uh, or indeed uh, various uh, resolutions of the United Nations, which kinds of measures are likely to, uh, to affect Israeli public opinion, if any? Uh, that's a mute question. Uh, there is an argument that um, the more the world presses Israel then uh, the more is the Israeli uh, voter hunkers down, the more the siege mentality grows here. Uh, the more people will say it's us against the world. They don't understand. They don't have to live here. Uh, they don't have to take the risks of pulling back uh, from the West Bank and the possibility of uh, Hamas taking over and the possibility of Israel's airport coming under rocket fire, etc., etc. So uh, it could backfire. It could turn uh, the center in Israel uh, more to the right. Um, And this is something that the international community, I think, is aware of and something uh, that has to be played out, thought out at least very carefully. Uh, An increase in sanctions, an increase in uh, uh, turning Israel uh, into a pariah state may well uh, have a negative effect and will certainly not uh, push Israel uh, into making more concessions. Mark Weiss in Jerusalem and Simon Carswell in Washington, thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com and you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Robert Sullivan, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. Mm-hmm.